Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. Hello. Hi. Welcome to Spooky Psychology with Megan and Lauren. We're here again. Once again. Just for you with our spooky mic condoms that we have now. We, uh, like we said before, we're brand new at this, so we finally got some windscreens for our microphones, and uh, hopefully you so can... the appropriate term for spooky microphone condoms. <laughs> yes, a windscreen is the appropriate term over poofy microphone condoms, but that's what we're calling them for funsies. We may or may not just cut all of that out and <laughs> just come up with a better intro. Um, so yeah, we're here. Um, today we're going to get into nasty area. We are. Yeah, any, anything at the top? Exciting stuff you want to share? Yeah, I think we can share some exciting stuff. So this is actually the first episode we've recorded since we actually put this podcast out there. Um, So the date, it is November 7th right now. Um, Mm -hmm. And we have 104 subscribers on Spotify as of this morning. So hello to all of our subscribers. We love you. We Um, love you very much. Um, It's been weird. We saw that. Um, some of our subscribers are from Germany. Germany. Hey, Germany. How you guys doing? Brazil, what up? Wait, I'm gonna I think we have a few up. in Iceland. You know what? I think where is Malta? We have people from Malta. That is a good question. I do not know where Malta is. I'm very ignorant. <laughs> so we have a few in Mexico. Yeah. Hello Here, to our Mexican up. listeners. Oh, hold up, hold up. Okay, so yeah, as of today, we have 105 followers. Oh, we're up to 105. It was 104 when we checked earlier, so welcome. welcome. Number 105. <laughs> we're very excited to have you here. Okay, so mainly from the United States, not surprised. Uh, Germany, Malta, still don't know where that is. We're sorry, Malta. We'll look you up on a map. Australia. Hey. Italy. Ooh. Romania. Very nice. <laughs> Brazil. Uh-huh. And the Netherlands. And the Netherlands. That's kind of cool because I think when we put this up there, we were expecting, um, of course, our OG fan Brandy and some other, you know, people who have come to all of their, our live events, really local to subscribe. Mm-hmm. And uh, we've weirdly gone global, yeah. which I was not really expecting. You sent me a screenshot of like all these like. I was like, countries. how did you find us? It's like, did you? <laughs> how is this possible? I think you were like, do you know people in these countries? Like, yes. are these friends? Friendy friends? Yeah, I don't, I don't know anyone in these countries. At least I don't think so. If you are my friend and you're in that country, and I've offended you, I'm sorry. If Lauren forgot that you live in one of those countries, please send her a message and remind her. Of- oh yeah, at the top we wanted to definitely give some shout out mm-hmm. um, first. To our one and only patron. Hello, Mary. <laughs> Thank you, Mary. Thanks, girl. She is supporting us. So, as we promised, you get a shout out. We do have a Patreon page. So, if you want to become a patron, um, we definitely appreciate it. It helps mm-hmm. us kind of keep this podcast going. And there's some cool things that we throw in uh, for supporting us. Yeah, we got some fun little extras um, and money goes towards lovely things like these brand new microphone windscreens that get you a podcast with less breathing noises, less Gotham's collar shaking in the background. I think it gives us character. Character. (laughs) 
<laughs> it does. We're not going to edit every fuck up out because that's just not our style. Yeah, we're keeping it real. We got to leave in enough that we seem approachable. I also want to give shout out to a couple of people who left us reviews on iTunes. Oh, we have some reviews on iTunes already. We just got on Ooh. iTunes yesterday and we already have today. reviews. Yep, we got five five star ratings and two reviews. Ooh. So I, I'll read them just because I don't think you've seen them yet. I have not seen them. Okay, we got one from Jamie Grisco. It says, love this idea for a podcast. And her subject line is, yes. Yes, girl. <laughs> yes, queen. Or... Guy, Jamie, could get. Do we have a picture? Can we verify? Girl, girl. Um, Okay. I know her from Chicago Murderinos. She actually has a podcast too. Ooh. Um, and it's called Do Not Cross. So shout out to Jamie. Shout out to Jamie. Your first episode, it was very good. And her podcast, Do Not Cross. They're Chicago based too. Yeah, girl. Yeah, girl. Um, second one subject line so interesting i love Mm. these women and the perspectives they give on these cases a lot of true crime podcasts are just winging it but these ladies actually know what's up i can't wait to hear what else they cover and that is from mary beth flores thank you very much mary beth one of our og fans as well coming to our events we always love to have you guys there we love to get our reviews thank you for everyone for those five-star ratings we were pretty psyched about it i mean again we started this whole thing as like a one-time marketing event in a basement <laughs> um and now we're doing we're doing pretty good yeah so Just chilling rope bringing you the content that you yes. deserve yes i am in a very fluffy bathrobe right now just for everyone out there who needs to know this is uh i'm very comfortable where'd you get it from? uh it was a gift Actually, Tim got me this lovely bathrobe on Amazon for Christmas a couple years ago. So anyone who needs to know what to get me for Christmas, I would also like a robe that I will come and record in the future. Yeah, I mean, I'm just wearing my winter coat as if it were a robe. She's wearing her winter (laughs) coat. um, But, you know, yeah, if anybody, you know, we're coming up on some holidays. If you are looking for some uh, a gift idea for your partner might i suggest a very fuzzy bathrobe it uh it's really the gift that keeps on giving <laughs> everyone appreciates that i feel like i want to get your bathrobe like embroidered like i think it was our first episode where you're like i'm a fan of fuzzy things i want to get that on your bathrobe i did i believe i said i'm a fan of like fuzzy blankets and soft things yeah. which Basically, it is extremely true. Lauren, you're in my apartment. I think you can take a look around and verify. There's a lot of fuzzy things. There's like a, there's a strong Kuga influence. Is that how you say it? It is how you say it. I looked it up. (laughs) I mean, I don't feel like it looks like Kuga, but I do not speak any of the language and I don't know what their letters sound like. So that's, maybe that'll be if we ever get to the point where we get merch, maybe we will sell a fuzzy, spooky psychology bathrobe. Oh, for all the spoonies. For all of our spoonies out there. Shout out if you're also a spoonie. If you're chronically ill and in pain a lot, we hear you, we see you, we represent you. And we strongly recommend fuzzy bathrobes. At least I do. It really, it helps. So do fuzzy socks. I keep Aldi has some dope-ass slipper socks right now, and I keep buying them, and I buy fuzzy slipper socks every year, and everybody else does, because they just make me so happy. Me too. Everybody deserves that. They do. And also... I don't know if this has been your experience with fuzzy socks, but, like, sometimes when you wash them a bunch, they lose, they're not fuzzy anymore. 
bullshit. There, there's a definite like, like that's why I keep seeing these like where they're like luxury fuzzy socks and they're like forty dollars a pair and I'm like, like I will wear it once and they will lose their fuzz. My Aldi pairs are uh, two fifty for two pairs. Yeah, and they had their full slipper socks, which means they have little nubbies on the bottom, so I don't fall. I am I'm a pretty constant fall risk as a human being, so I like to get my slipper socks on so I don't fall. Yeah. When I'm strutting around in my fuzzy socks in the bathroom. There's a visual for you guys. (laughs) I'll cut some of that out, I'm sure, but Um, we'll keep the funny parts. I think some of that was funny and some of that was... You might hate this. I don't know. But you're listening, so here we go. Are you here for the murder? Probably. Probably. (laughs) I know. Also, shout out to Leslie. Leslie is a good friend of ours who, when watching the first... Leslie Leslie. Oh, okay. She texted us during our first episode, and I believe it was just like, I also love fuzzy socks. Or like, I I love fuzzy things. I feel like you're here with me in my living room. That is the vibe that we're going for That's what here. we're going for. We want you to feel like we're there with you in the least creepy way possible. We're watching you. Anyway, uh, mass hysteria. <laughs> yes, we're going to talk about mass hysteria today. So I believe I'm going to start us off. So we're going to start off with the definition of mass hysteria, which good place to start, right? So, kind of, we'll start off talking about groupthink. Groupthink is a psychological phenomenon that occurs when a group forms a quick opinion that matches group consensus, not actually thinking through the evaluation. And some people say mass hysteria is really an extreme example of groupthink. So, people aren't thinking critically about it. They're just kind of going with the flow. You've probably seen this happen if you've ever had to do a group project Mm -hmm. in school. Groupthink tends to take over pretty quickly um hate a group project or just do everything <laughs> but I, I was always the person too that ended up doing all the work right so i think like sometimes in that it can be just like laziness like people don't want to do it and like, yeah whatever but a lot of times we see this in small groups of people where just like you're just like yeah okay that works for me yep um the term groupthink was coined in the early 1970s by psychologist Irving Janus, Irving L. Janus, I don't know how important his middle initial is, but that's his call and it's in there, so we'll go there. Um, In 1972, he published a book, Victims of Groupthink, a Psychological Study of Foreign Policy Decisions and Fiascos. That sounds good. Right? So, I mean, obviously, my previous example was pretty small, even though group projects can be frustrating they're really irritating like the stakes are not usually that big like absolute worst case scenario you fail a class and have to retake it which sucks but groupthink can also affect us in much bigger ways um politically i'm not gonna go too much into uh my opinions on the current administration but you do see groupthink coming out there sometimes with policies um where you know somebody is like yeah this will fix the problem um and then everybody is like, great idea. We will just do that thing mm-hmm. without actually looking at all the evidence about how we solve problems. And I think a lot of voting can happen with that, where you're just kind of voting with groupthink. Maybe you're gr- voting to align with the common ideals of your political party without actually looking mm-hmm. through the issues and the solutions and the specific things that they're promoting. Right. For familial influence. That yes. Yeah. Yeah. If everybody you can think of... Uh, 
what your political views were when you were in elementary school. You probably were just like, whatever my parents think. Whatever mom and dad say. Whatever mom and dad say. And then later you tend to change. Or, I mean, you may stay the same, but more for your own ideology. Totally fine. So there's also something called mass psychogenic illness. Also called mass sociogenic illness, mass psychogenic disorder, epidemic disorder, or mass hysteria. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of more specifically what we're talking about. So like we said, mass hysteria is kind of just an extreme example of groupthink. Um And then this is where it becomes mass hysteria. It's the rapid spread of illness, signs, and symptoms affecting members of a cohesive group originating from a nervous system disturbance involving excitation, loss, or alteration of function, whereby physical complaints that are exhibited unconsciously have no corresponding organic etiology. Um, And I'm pretty sure that's from John Hopkins. So according to a 1997 review of research by the Johns Hopkins University School of Hygiene and Public Health, mass hysteria is a constellation of symptoms suggestive of organic illness, but without an identifiable cause that occurs between two or more people who share beliefs related to those symptoms. Um, It's a social phenomenon involving otherwise healthy people. And like some of these examples and some of this is talking, um, you know, mass hysteria can be physical. Physical in nature. You can get physically ill, but it can also be psychological in nature where people are exhibiting anxiety. People are exhibiting things that are more consistent with mental disorders that they don't have, and large groups of people are exhibiting them at the same time. My example that I'll go through later is a bit more psychological in nature than physical symptoms, but physical symptoms are involved. Okay. So, so you might wonder how does mass hysteria happen? Excellent question, guys. <laughs> Um, so here are some options here. Uh, so environmental incidents. So that might look like contamination of water supply that causes people to literally worry themselves sick over getting sick, even though they're otherwise perfectly healthy. Um, people who witness individuals around them falling ill unwittingly trick their bodies into manifesting the same symptoms. Has that ever happened to you before? I mean, kind of. Like, if I've ever seen somebody, like, throw up, it, like, mm-hmm. makes me feel nauseous for sure. Um, not that this is exactly the same, but, like, if somebody talks about, like, having lice, Ugh. I automatically am like, well, I must have lice, and I start getting itchy. I have also had head lice in my life. I'm assuming you have, based off of yes. that response. It's instant. If somebody mentions lights, I, like, want to shave my head. It was that bad. Yep. So it's like you can feel them on you. Um, and I think even, like, you can think about this when you're thinking about, like, thinking about becoming sick and being sick. If yeah. you think about how many times you've, like, thought about calling sick off of work the night before, and you're like, I'm going to do it. I'm just going to call off. And then you end up actually getting sick the next day. You know, you can, your mind can cause a lot to happen. Absolutely. I totally identify with that. So another option is social or emotional pressure simply become too much for a community to handle, leading to widespread anxiety in the form of neurological problems, such as blindness or numbness. All three situations are examples of psychosomatic disorders, meaning the brain is making the body sick. The experts say there's no less or real, no less real or painful than any other illness with physiological roots. So that's kind of interesting. Mm-hmm. The group members feed off of each other's emotional reactions, 
causing the panic to escalate. So, you know, you see somebody freaking out naturally, you become more nervous, it affects your um, fight or flight, you know, all that good stuff. And then group think seems to occur most often when a respective or persuasive leader is present, inspiring members to agree with his or her opinion. So, you know, maybe a doctor, maybe a president, <laughs> maybe well, I it, it could be a lot. Um, you know, in small communities, you can see that, um, you know, with anybody who's up there, like a pastor or yeah. anybody. And a lot of times it's not intentional. Like a lot of people don't set off to like, I'm going to make a lot of people sick. I don't think that's like really anyone's intention, but it can happen. And when somebody's telling you something is going to happen that you respect, you're pretty inclined to believe them. Yeah, totally. All right, so now I'm going to go through some historical examples of mass hysteria because, honestly, I find this so interesting. Hopefully you guys haven't heard of all of these before, um, but it's really cool. So in 1518, there was a dancing plague, um, and people just started dancing in the street, which at first signs kind of... Kind of fun, kind of like a kooky fun thing, Um, except they were dancing for up to a month and several people died um, of, you know, heart attacks, exhaustion, things like that. Um, So, yeah, just a lot of people straight up died. I don't have... reminds me of... Have you ever seen Midsummer? I have not. Oh, God. Watch it. Get back to me. Okay. Do you want to clarify your statement of why it reminds you of Midsummer? Is Midsummer what is Midsummer? So Midsummer, like the way I would describe it is well, the director described it this way. It's like a perverted version of Wizard of Oz. Ooh. Okay. So let that um let that simmer for a second and see if you're interested in I'll that. Just but let that percolate. Let that percolate. And we'll get back to um, it. Um but no, it was really good. And there is um you know, this part where they talked about, like, dancing around, like, the maypole and how there's, like, some folklore with that. Mm-hmm. Like, the devil wanted them to dance, or I, I don't know. I would have to look into the folklore, but it kind of reminds me of that. It all goes back to Satan. Everyone. Yeah, every time. Um, so there's not a whole lot of information on the dancing plague. Obviously, it was 1518. Um, some people kind of say that maybe that didn't really happen. So who knows? We weren't there, um, but that was kind of one of the first reported instances of mass hysteria. And sometimes, I mean, it leads to people dying. Um, Some more, we'll get to a little bit more modern examples that we have more information about. So there was a laughing epidemic in 1962 um, in Tanzania. It was at a mission-run boarding school for girls, and it started with three girls laughing. And spread haphazardly throughout the school, affecting 95 of the 159 students there. Symptoms lasted for a few hours to up to 16 days in those affected, right? And the staff were not affected, but reported that the students were unable to concentrate on their lessons. The school was forced to close. So that's really intense. Like, you think sometimes, like, oh, laughing, it's not that big of a deal. But, I mean, imagine laughing for 16 days. Well, I even think about it, like, sometimes, like, I've laughed, like, really hard at something, and, like, my cheeks hurt after Mm -hmm. a while. Or, like, Like, your stomach can hurt your abs. Yeah. Yeah. You can't see because you're, like, crying, like, all of it. 
that actually sounds awful. Like, it sounds terrible. Um, But then what happened was the school closed and students were sent home, so it ended up spreading to other villages. Mm -hmm. Um, So in April and May, 217 people had laughing attacks in the village. Most of them were school children and young adults. Um, The school was reopened in May only to be closed again in June. And in June, the laughing epidemic spread to another school affecting 48 girls. So, and two boys' schools as well. So it spread pretty far to the point where they literally had to close schools because the laughter could not stop. So now... Mass hysteria. Mass hysteria. (laughs) We're in it right fucking now. Um, So kind of one that you may or may not have heard of. This is a mass hysteria event that kind of keeps coming back. It's called Coro. And the first instances were in 97 and through 2003. And I think there's still some now. But this is a mass hysteria in which men believe that their penis is retracting into their body. It's not. To be clear, their penis is fine. I feel like that would be impossible, right? Without surgery? I don't know enough about penises to comment. Um, Why aren't you a penis doctor? I mean, I know enough to teach like a basic sex ed class, but I don't think it... I know testicles can retract kind of into the body when you're cold. I don't think... I think maybe partial, but not all the way. I don't know. Now we're just speculating on penises. As we do. Penis havers. Let us know. We we don't. Neither of us has one, so I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Probably cut part of that out. Okay. <laughs> um, but people, but these men thought that their penises were retracting into their bodies, which is horrifying. So there's an epidemic in six different African nations, and there's also been some um, cases of it happening in, in, like, some Asian countries and kind of all over. But the interesting thing is... Um, I'm realizing now that I had additional printed out notes when we did this live that I do not have anymore. I'm realizing that for myself, too. We're just going to do our best. We're going to do our best. Um, But there were cases where hundreds of people would show up to the emergency room in one night because of this. So it is a legitimate thing. And what's interesting is there were no injuries as they relate, like, related to retracting penises itself. Again, they were not retracting. But a lot of men did things in an attempt to keep their penises from retracting into their bodies, like pulling them out with clothespins and different things that did end up causing some damage. And there were also cases of this with women thinking that their breasts were going inside their bodies or other things. There were cases of coro by proxy where adults thought that, you know, their infant son's penises were retracting and also sought help over that so it was very significant and that's like the kind of power that mass hysteria can actually have um so one that may have actually affected some of our listeners out there is the 2016 clown sighting so that one was really interesting um it because it didn't I mean, I don't think there were actually that many clowns. There were probably a few. I genuinely think it was mostly teenagers who thought it would be hilarious to, like, be in forests and stuff dressed as a clown with, like, a knife or something. Um, But that kind of really went out of hand where people really thought that there were clowns everywhere chasing them, like, good old-fashioned murder clowns. Murder clowns. Hashtag vertical. You're probably safe from clowns, guys, but chlorophobia is a very real thing. It is real. So we're not judging you if you have it. I actually 
have had clients who do have that pretty bad. Um, mm-hmm. But usually it's related to, like, an earlier incident where something traumatic happened. Yeah. So, we'll, we'll talk about it more in our phobias episode. Yeah, we will. We will, guys. Okay. little spoiler alert for well, the future. Well, stay tuned for that. So, Lauren, why don't you tell me a little bit more about a story of mass hysteria? Okay. So <laughs> that was the most enthusiastic you've ever sounded about anything in your life. You're like, yes, I will tell you. I was born ready. All right. I'm going to talk to you guys about the Salem witch trials because personally it is so interesting to me. Um, it is a very popular case of and that's hysteria. So it began in February of 1692 and ended in 1693. Um, when the remaining victims were released from jail. So more than 200 people were accused of practicing witchcraft, and 20 were actually killed during the hysteria, which is crazy. In January of 1692, a group of girls who later became known as the Afflicted Girls fell ill after playing a fortune-telling game and began behaving very strangely. Sorry, I needed yogurt. That's okay. Sometimes we all need yogurt. All right. So there was um, Elizabeth Hubbard, Susanna Sheldon, Mary Warren, Elizabeth Booth. um, And they all started to experience the same symptoms, which were suffering from fits, quote-unquote. So they would hide under furniture, contort in pain, and experience fever. So in February, Samuel Paris called for a doctor, um, and Samuel Paris is the dad of one of the girls. Okay. Um, um, and it is believed that the doctor who came was Dr. William Briggs to examine the girls. So the doctor was unable to find anything physically wrong with them and suggested they may be a bewitch. I mean, whenever I'm feeling sick and I don't know what's happening, I go straight to witchcraft. I don't know about any of you, but... Right, like, who has the voodoo doll of me? What's happening? Um... So the afflicted girls, quote-unquote, accused these first three victims. So there's Tituba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne. Mm-hmm. They were accused of witchcraft. Yeah. So let's set the scene for this hysteria. Hysteria um, was an ancient diagnosis. So it's derived from the Greek word for womb. Um, hysteria has existed as a diagnosis for millennia. The first documented case is recorded on Egyptian papyrus dating back to 1990 BC, reporting abnormal movements of the uterus that resulted in unusual mental and physical symptoms, um, and this is common in women. So in the Christian era, demonic possession replaced the uterus as an etiology for hysterical symptoms. The Puritans who had left England due to religious persecution feared the religion was under attack again and worried that they were losing control of their colony. So people began to fear that the devil was constantly trying to find ways to infiltrate and destroy Christians and their communities, as the devil does. You know, the history of hysteria is so interesting, particularly when you when you get to some of the like wandering uterus and yeah. other things. So, I mean, really, historically speaking, when women act up, they get diagnosed as hysterical. Yes, hysterical women. 
As we all are, deep down. As we all are. I don't know about anybody who's listening, but my uterus never wandered. It's basically stayed in the same place. I feel like if your uterus is wandering, you have a much bigger medical issue and probably need surgery. It should not be wandering. Uh, speak up immediately. So something else that was going on during this time period in that colony um, was a recent smallpox epidemic, which I'm sure got people on edge. Growing rivalries between families within the colony, so there's some of that. Uh, a threat of attack from nearby Native American tribes, and a recent influx of refugees, so, you know, definitely causing tension there. Mm-hmm. Um, and these three women that were basically accused of witchcraft were actually social outcasts and easy targets for the accusation of witchcraft. Hmm. So, you know, definitely take that into account, too. So, on March 1st, Tituba, Sarah Good, and Sarah Osborne were arrested arrested and examined. So during Tituba's examination, she confessed that she had been approached by Satan, along with Sarah Good and Sarah Osborne, and that they had all agreed to do his bidding as his witches. So there's that. Um, as one does. As one does when Satan approaches them. And I find it really interesting because where I just don't know in like, society within their belief system where the idea that Satan creates witches came from. Yeah. Like they're kind of separate ideologies. The Bible isn't like, and then Satan made them witches. Like, it's just not... Like, totally different. So it's just kind of like within their own... I don't know. I think that it's just interesting. I'm not sure historically like where that belief came in, but... If there's any like folklore or people who know that answer, message us. We're interested. Yeah. Um, so, after Tituba confessed, um, Governor William Phipps set up a special court known as the Court of Oyer and Terminer, which translates to hear and determine to hear these cases. So, he made, like, a different special court just for this scenario. Hmm. It's um, a catchy name. It is. So, as they were established specifically to hear the cases that are extraordinary and serious in nature. Um, so these women are considered dangerous prisoners. They were kept in the dungeon and were chained to the walls because jail officials believed that this would prevent their spirits from fleeing the jail and tormenting their victims. You know, keeping things safe, secure, keep it locked. Yeah. Um, so they were definitely critics of what was going on, though. So one critic was John Proctor, um, and he was quickly accused of witchcraft himself. So if you basically said, hey, I, I don't think you're doing the right thing, then you would get accused of witchcraft. Hmm. Proctor's entire family was accused, including all of his children, his pregnant wife, Elizabeth, and sister-in-law. English law at the time dictated that anyone who refused to enter a plea could be tortured. So this legal tactic was known as pini forte et dure, which means strong and harsh punishment. And get this, so the torture consisted of laying the prisoner on the ground, naked, with a board placed on top of them. Heavy stones were loaded onto the board, and the weight was gradually increased until the the prisoner either entered a plea or died. I feel like that's so extreme, given what the girls are actually reported to do. It's like, oh, they got sick, and now they're being tortured. Right, like... It's, punishment doesn't fit the crime. It's not like they were, like, murdering cats or something. Right. Like, even, like, the original stuff with witchcraft was not really affecting other people at all. Right. And if you murder cats, 
this is the torture route that you deserve. <laughs> We're coming out strong Falling against hot. cat murder. Yes. Don't do it. Don't do it. This has been a public service announcement. <laughs> do not murder animals or people. Or just don't do, don't it. do it. What are your plans? Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> Bridget Bishop uh, was the first person brought to trial. Bridget was accused of by five of the afflicted girls who stated she had physically hurt them and tried to make them sign a pact with the devil. During her trial, Bishop repeatedly defended herself, stating, I am innocent. I know nothing of it. I have done no witchcraft. I am as innocent as the child unborn. So she really sucked their story of not being a witch. So basically, I wanted to kind of share some stories of intolerance that were going on. So these are people who are all accused of witchcraft and just kind of funky the reasons why. So let me read them. So this first one is Sarah Wilde. She was age 65. Sarah Wilde lived in Topsfield and was the wife of the local judge, John Wilde. Sarah Wilde had somewhat of a bad reputation due to previous brushes with the law. In 1649, she was accused of fornicating out of wedlock with Thomas Wardwell, and in 1663, she was accused of wearing a silk. How dare she? Silk? Silk out of wedlock? Clearly a witch, the right? scandal, yeah, because we all know that when we think of witches, we think of premarital sex and silk scarves. <laughs> There's a Halloween costume for you. All right. Please do not go as premarital sex <laughs> and silk scarves for Halloween. Or do, and then send us a picture. Um, Anne Pudetor was age 70. Uh, she was a widow who lived in Salem Town, where she also worked as a nurse and midwife. She had a reputation for being sharp-tongued and often quarreled with the locals. So she's, there was some intolerance there. So it sounds them. like she's just an angry old woman. You know, I would agree. I would definitely agree. So, definitely witch. Moving on. Oh, I forgot this part. So, she was accused of witchcraft in May of 1692 by Sarah Churchill and several other of the afflicted girls in the Salem village. Some of her medical supplies, such as foot ointments, were confiscated and introduced to the court as objects of the occult. Thanks, Dr. Souls. (laughs) Guys, your foot ointments are evil. Occult. Just letting you know. Anyway, it's so disappointing. Uh, Samuel Wardwell, age 49. Samuel was a carpenter from Andover. He was also well known for a fortune teller and practitioner of English folk magic. It is believed that his work in the occult led to his witchcraft accusation. So basically because he wasn't practicing the common religion, um, he was accused of witchcraft. So... I think it's pretty clear in those examples the intolerance that was happening. Like, it's so weird that, you know, but again, with mass hysteria, it's always weird. But, like, why would any of that screamed witchcraft? What creams of the occult? <laughs> Which creams and silk scarves? These women are out of hand. Out of control. So, yeah. So, that was interessante, I thought. Um, so, it's a common myth that the Salem witch trials victims were burned at the stake. Um, Salem was ruled by English law at the time, um, which only allowed death by burning to be used against men who committed high treason, and only after they had been hanged, quartered, and drawn. Around the end of September, the use of spectral evidence, um, so based on dreams or visions, 
was finally declared inadmissible, thus marking the beginning of the end of the Salem witch trials. I mean, that, like, if your dreams were legally found in court, what implication would that have? There would be a lot on my end. I don't know. (laughs) Mine as well. It would be like people that I know. It's like, you're legally a dragon now, per this dream that Megan has. Sexual evidence has shown me. All right. Other evidence used in trials included confessions of the accused, right? Possession of certain items such as poppets, ointments, or books of the occult, as well as the presence of an alleged witch's teat which is a strange mole or blemish on the accused person's body. See, and I always thought that a witch's teeth was just a third nipple. Yeah, no. But I guess... They have multiple a witch's teeth. I mean, I have uh, a lot of moles, so I guess I'm a super witch now. Yes, you are. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> September 27th. <laughs> On September 22nd, eight people were hanged. These were the last hangings of the Salem Witch Trial. Mm. Alright, so let's get into theory about some of the symptoms here. So, honestly, a lot of these symptoms that they were experiencing could have been easily explained by any of these. So, one is epilepsy. Two, boredom. (laughs) Three, child abuse. Four, mental illness. One that I think that is actually really interesting is rye infected with fungus. Um, so LSD is a derivative of ergot. Um, this is a fungus that affects rye grain. Ergotism, ergot poisoning, has been implicated in other outbreaks of bizarre behavior. And toxicologists now know that eating ergot contaminated food can lead to convulsive disorders characterized by violent muscle spasms, vomiting, delusions, hallucinations, crawling sensations of the skin, and a host of other symptoms. I mean, it's so interesting because it's like, realistically, either some kids were bored being abused or ate some bread that wasn't good anymore and, like, 22 people died. Right. Like, it's... Over children acting strangely. Right. Which, if you've met children, they do a lot. They're probably not witches, though. Probably not. Um, So the aftermath. So the day of prayer and fasting was held on January 15th, 1697, and was known as the Day of Official Humiliation. This is a quote. "Um, The whole colony, moreover, had suffered. The people had been so determined upon hunting out and destroying witches that they had neglected everything else. Planting, cultivating, the care of houses, barns, roads, fences were all forgotten. As a direct result, food became scarce and taxes higher. Farms were mortgaged or sold, first to pay prison fees, then to pay taxes. Frequently, they were abandoned. Salem Village began that slow decay, which eventually erased its houses and walls, but never its name and memory. I also wanted to read this quote um, by Anne Putnam. So she was one of the afflicted girls. Mm -hmm. Um, So in in 1706, afflicted girl Anne Putnam Jr. also issued a public apology for her role in the Salem Witch Trials. Um, so her apology states, I desire to be humbled before God for that sad and humbling providence that befell my father's family in the year about 92, that I then being in my childhood should by such a providence of God be made an instrument for the accusing of several 
persons of a grievous crime, whereby their lives were taken away from them, whom now I have just grounds and good reason to believe they were innocent persons, and it was a great deal of delusion of Satan that deceived me in that sad time, whereby I justly fear I have been instrumental with others, though ignorantly and unwittingly, to bring upon myself and this land of the guilt of innocent blood." Though that was said or done by me against any person, I can truly and uprightly say before God and man, I did not out of anger, malice, or ill will to any person, for I had no such thing against one of them. But what I did was ignorantly being deluded by Satan, and particularly as I was chief instrument of accusing a good wife nurse and her two sisters. I desired to lie in the dust and to be humbled for it, and, and that I was a cause with others of so sad a calamity to them and their families, for which cause I desire to lie in dust and earnestly beg forgiveness of God, and from all those unto whom I have given just a cause of sorrow and offense, whose relations were taken away or accused. So, basically, she's saying that she did the wrong thing, and she accused them of witchcraft, and she doesn't believe that any of them are witches, and she feels like she was tricked by the devil to do this. Mm-hmm. I think culturally, like, that would make sense, given, like, you know, Puritanism and everything that was in their religious view. It's like, I did something bad because I was tempted by Satan. Satan's the cause of it. But even if you look at um, that quote from the day of official humiliation, they're really not actually saying they feel bad about killing people it's very much just like and how it was impacted it's just like well it was terrible for everyone because we killed a bunch of people and now we don't have the money that they were bringing in so we have suffered like it's really focusing on that and not just like maybe we messed up we killed a bunch of people and that wasn't fair we killed 22 was it 22 the total 22 too many people yeah so, like, the thing that I definitely want to highlight, though, too, is just, like, okay, how the hell did this happen? How did um, mass hysteria play into this? So, one, I think the people of power definitely played a role. So, there's a reverend that was part of it. Um, there are a lot of wealthy people who were kind of pointing fingers. Um, there also was the doctor who even suggested the witchcraft. And, you know, especially back then, doctors were held in high regard. Um I would say the outbreak outbreak of smallpox, kind of like we were talking about in the beginning. Um, you know, if people are constantly getting sick, it's it's putting people on edge, and you know, people are wondering where it's coming from. It's very fear based, and I think also something is just like the fear of the unknown. So, you know, people who, um, you know, decided to go against you know, Puritanism, you know, not knowing what that means. Is that a bad thing? Is it a good thing? You know, is it a neutral thing? So they automatically kind of put a dark light around it. And I think that definitely led to a lot of the hysteria as well. Mm-hmm. There was, yeah, there was a lot going on there. Little. So yeah, so that was about the Salem Witch Trials. The Salem Witch Trials. Thank you, Lauren, You're for teaching us all about this. Okay, so I am going to talk about something a little bit more modern, a little bit different, a little interesting. Um, 
So I'm kind of going to cover a few different things, but I'm going to talk about the satanic panic in the 80s in the United States and also about the McMartin preschool trial. So kind of a background info on this, and I'm going to start off with some trigger warnings here. So I'm going to be talking about um, childhood sexual abuse, um, alleged abuse, and some of the details may be a little bit disturbing, so please exercise caution while listening. If you are somebody who's sensitive to hearing that, maybe listen to the Satanic Panic intro, but once I start talking about McMartin Preschool, you may want to respectfully duck out of that discussion. Totally fine. So... You know, talking about the satanic panic, I am genuinely, I just want to make this clear up top, I am not judging people who believe in Satan. It is absolutely nothing against it. But really, I'll kind of explain what happened here and how this is different. So the fear in the satanic panic, it was really about how people worshipped Satan, how people were honoring him, and that ritual abuse was happening as people honoring Satan. So not even necessarily fear about Satan himself, but how cults and other people are worshiping Satan. Um, So the evangelical Christian kind of view of Satan at the time, you know, a lot of people genuinely believe that um, all of the ills in society are direct results of Satan doing his evil works on planet Earth. Now, a lot of... Christians do believe in Satan, do believe that he's real, but more so think that he's just trying to get in the way of your relationship with God. Like, that's what he's getting at. He's not like, oh, you're a normal person. Go murder your neighbors. It's a bit more like, oh, you're going to read your Bible? Maybe you don't do that and you watch Netflix instead. Like, that's more of like the modern view from a lot of people where it's like, He's there, but he's not necessarily inspiring and having cults created to honor him and everything. Um, But some people do believe that he's literally interfering in every aspect of his life, believe in, you know, demonic possession and those sorts of things. So there are those people out there. And that was kind of a big part of this and how it happened that a lot of people, um, similar to as you saw in Lauren's example of the Salem witch trials, particularly with the letter at the end that Satan is tempting them, Satan is inspiring evil on Earth, and things like that. Um, So the Satanic Panic actually kind of began in the 1970s. The Manson cult murders had people shook, is what I put here. They, They were shooketh. You know, really, I think that made people feel unsafe. That was such a big case, and it was so interesting and so different. Yeah. Um, so there's a lot going on, as we talked about in, uh, our cults episode, we did talk about the 70s quite a bit. Yeah, Interesting did. time. Um, so there was that. And then Anton LaVey published The Satanic Bible. So even now, I'm going to clarify, there is a difference between the Satanism that people think is out there and, like, the Satanism of people who are actually Satanists following the Satanic Bible. Um, The Satanic Bible was published, it was honestly based off of a lot of stuff that was already out there, kind of compiled together. There's a lot of different types of Satanism. Some people literally worship the devil. Some people don't actually think he's real, but identify as Satanist. But basically in Satanism, a lot of people interpret the Garden of Eden story as Satan 
pushing for human beings to have free will and knowledge. And so Satan has kind of become like an icon of free thinkers within the satanic religion. So that's more of how they see it is it's about free thought and freedom to choose and actually speaks pretty strongly against harming other people unless they harm you first. So those people are not the people that we're talking about here and that people were genuinely worried about. But especially with people who viewed Satan as this evil presence and this thing that was very present in their lives, hearing that people were worshiping it, they would probably believe that the worship would make him stronger and cause bad things in society. Then... In 1971, The Exorcist book came out, and then in 73, the movie, which was a really huge deal. If you've read about the premiere of The Exorcism, it's fascinating, but it really scared people. And again, that's about demonic possession, and it made people much more likely to think that it's kind of real. Um, And interestingly enough, the Ouija board was actually invented by Hasbro in the 20s, which are 20s or 30s, um, and was viewed as like a fun, kitschy party game. And after... The Exorcist movie came out in 73. That's when people actually thought that it was like an evil thing that could literally talk to people who were dead. So, fun fact there. So, yeah, I mean, you can kind of see this is all the background info. We haven't even really gotten to the panic yet, but these are lots of things that are contributing to that belief. Um, And in 72, the book Satan Seller came out. It was a memoir of growing up in a satanic cult. Um, that later came out to be completely made up, actually. Um, you'll see that with a lot of those books. They later found them to not be true. Um, Anton LaVey published a book called Satanic Rituals, also in 72, which again is bringing up that fear of Satanism. It's like now there are rituals that people are following. What are they? Um, The Jonestown Massacre increased public fear of cults, and multiple converted former Satanists began to speak out about the world being run by Satanists and the occult. So what you found is that actually in um, churches, there would be these people that went around and said that they were raised in Satanist cults, and like this is what was happening. They were making a lot of claims, kind of similar to the Illuminati, that Satanists were actually in charge of the government and everything. Um, A lot of them, again, turned out to just be like, actors and swindlers and other things not necessarily like any of this actually happened um this is all coinciding with the rise in serial killers in the 70s maybe we should just do an entire episode on the 70s what went wrong what went wrong (laughs) from two people who were not there we weren't there nope um then in the 80s population grew and two income households became the norm before that usually you'd have a parent stay home and some people both worked and needed daycare but it wasn't the common you'd have family watch your children or something but in the 80s that's really when daycare centers became common and that brought a lot of fear and discomfort with people Mm -hmm. because you're leaving your child with somebody that's not family you haven't known them for your whole life and you don't know what's going to happen then the book michelle remembers came out And I tried so hard to get a copy of this, and I have not been able to. So if you have a lead on a copy of Michelle Remembers, send it over. I would like to read it, so please let me know. Um, So this is a memoir of satanic abuse. It was written by a therapist and a patient who used hypnosis-recovered memories, Mm. which uh, now are pretty debunked. We can't do that. Um, Nothing in the book can be corroborated. 
So in the book, it describes an 81-day ritual um, that Michelle was at and was repeatedly abused at. And they were able to prove that Michelle was at school every single day during that 81-day ritual. Um, During that, I mean, she was supposedly horrifically physically abused. Um, She had no marks, bruises, anything noticeable, and was at school. And the biggest red flag of all, the therapist and Michelle then divorced their spouses and married each other. Highly problematic. Right. Whenever that starts to happen... Red flag. That should never happen. No, it should not. Um, And then the police and other organizations really started to talk about satanic cults and abuse. So they do trainings and stuff, and they would go into it and discuss them as real things that they were experiencing. You know, I think everybody I know grew up near a forest preserve that supposedly had tons of satanic rituals in it. Did you hear? Like, you always hear this stuff. Yeah. Like, those sticks in that pattern. It must be a cult. It's Satan, where it's just like, there's a piece of fabric on a twig which is leading you to this path where they do the rituals, and it's like, actually, it just kind of looks like somebody's shirt got caught and a little bit ripped off or something. Like, so let's not panic. All of those things is like, <laughs> that is a suspicious rock. And I, I mean, I think there are teenagers out there who definitely like paint stuff on rocks, oh, and, like upside down crosses. They're like, I'm so intense. Like, just to mess with people, right? But, like, there's literally no evidence of this satanic ritual abuse ever happening. Could have been covered up. I'll play devil's advocate here. Pun absolutely intended. But probably not really happening. But maybe. So we're going to talk about, like I said, the McMartin preschool trial. And as I mentioned, any of you people who don't want to hear about child abuse or alleged child abuse, just stop listening now. We'll catch you next time. Later. Bye. Bye. Um, So the first allegations came from a woman named Judy Johnson. She made a report regarding her two-and-a-half-year-old son. So I read multiple different articles on this, and they all gave different initial reports. So I'll just kind of list a lot of things that they said. So they said that... He had painful bowel movements, redness, a rash, or anal bleeding... Um, and that was why she was concerned. So all of those things could be abuse-related. They could also not be abuse-related, right? If you're saying, um, you know, if a kid has redness and painful bowel movements and bleeding, they could just be constipated, which is fairly common with children. It's not that, I mean, it's fairly common with a lot of people. It's not that abnormal. Um, All of that can cause bleeding. A -a two-and-a-half-year-old, they are not known for their hygiene, No, they don't. So redness and rashes can be common. um, But for parents, and I'm not saying, obviously, sometimes it is abuse. So you should definitely, like, ask your kids if you see something while changing a diaper. Ask some questions. Take your child to a pediatrician, not to the emergency room. And see what the doctor says. Pediatricians are pretty good at knowing what's up. So they can help you out, right? Um, another report that I read that was extremely concerning is that Judy Johnson had been checking her son because she had, like, vaginitis and was concerned that she gave it to him, which that's such a red flag. I don't even know how that could happen in a non-abusive situation. Like, there is very, I, I just don't understand. I guess maybe they, like, 
took baths together. I don't know. Something weird was happening if she was that concerned. And we'll get back to our good friend Judy in a bit because there was stuff going on there. Spoiler alert. Um, But again, like, so she said that she was concerned her son had been abused based on all of this. Um, So some people say that her son confirmed abuse. Some say that he told them it didn't happen. And some say he only said that it happened when he was in the room with his mom. So here's where it gets tricky. Two and a half year olds are pretty notoriously difficult to interview. I have interviewed a couple two year olds about child abuse. It's rough. Even three-year-olds may or may not be interviewable. You might think, like, oh, kids can talk, but that doesn't mean that they can actually, like, track questions and participate in an interview. So at that age, it's it's just so hard. Um, you know, I don't think that kids lie about abuse, per se, but kids that age especially do have a difficult time. They don't really understand how time works. They can't tell you when something happened. They may or may not be able to tell you where. They can usually just say who and what. So it's it's hard to track. It's hard to get an, an accurate and consistent answer from a child that young. That doesn't mean we shouldn't believe them. If they do report something, of course, believe them. But it's just the interview process is difficult. So the report named Ray Buckley as a potential abuser. So he was the grandson of Virginia McMartin, who started the daycare, and he was a worker at the daycare. So there's automatically, I think, some suspicion. A lot of people are suspicious of men who enjoy being around children. Um, It is super sexist. I actually watched a um, HBO made-for-TV documentary on this case that was fascinating. I didn't watch the whole thing. Um because I ran out of time before we did this live show. I'm going to be real. And then I just never finished it. I should finish it. But there's like this scene where the police are watching him and he's literally standing on the playground watching the children. And they're like, look at him looking at the children. And it's like, it's literally his job. He's a playground <laughs> monitor. I'm like, he's not doing anything suspicious. He's standing there watching children play as a daycare worker does. Right. To make sure that none of them die. We are grateful for your Thank you to all the daycare workers out there. Um, so despite the fact that this boy was not able to identify Ray from any photos and medical investigations of him showed no signs of sexual abuse, the police conducted a search of Buckley's home and confiscated evidence such as a rubber duck, a graduation robe, a teddy bear, and Playboy magazines, and he was arrested. So... This is interesting um, because that doesn't really sound like evidence to me. And <laughs> like a weird collection of things. Like, it, you know, the rubber duck. I don't know. Adult, do you own a rubber duck? I've gotten them as, like, weird, like, chachki. You know? Yeah, I've gotten a few. I'm sure I have one around here somewhere. When I got accepted to NIU, I think I got, like, an NIU duck. Right. I, yeah. think some, I think I have a duck with a graduation hat somewhere because... People give you those. Yeah. Um, a graduation robe. Not that abnormal, I think, because some of it said that, like, people were wearing black robes. Like, oh, they took it. it. Yeah. It does, to be fair. Graduation attire is super weird looking. It is. I fully agree with that. Um, a teddy bear, again, like, I have some stuffed animals in this room that were given to me as gifts. That's not abnormal. People might keep a childhood thing or something. 
Um, and Playboy magazine. She's an adult man. You can agree with it or disagree with it, but like somebody owning Playboy does not mean they're a child molester. That's right. a huge leap. Especially if it's a magazine that has adults. Playboy <laughs> does feature they do not feature children. You may not know that, but now you do. Just in case you don't know, I don't know a lot about Playboy, but I do know that it's not a child pornography publication. Yeah, our word. As you can tell, because it still exists. Right. And it would get shut down real fast. Absolutely. Um, around this time, Johnson began to make some more and more bizarre reports, which we will get to. So now, he's been arrested, and the police have to make decisions. Oh, I was just going to go back and say also, like... Just because a child does not have any evidence of sexual abuse on a medical exam absolutely does not mean that they were not sexually abused. I just want to make that very clear. Um, it can go either way. A lot of times there's not actually medical evidence of sexual abuse taking place. So that that's not as meaningful as I think some people make it out to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that he couldn't identify him from photos. Again, he's he's a baby. Some of them could. Some of them couldn't. It's hard. But during the investigation, they, of course, became worried that this man was around lots of children, and they decided the best course of action was to send a letter home to the families. Okay. So I'm going to read this letter to you. So, September 8th, 1983. I feel like the time just gives it more context. Dear parents, this department is conducting a criminal investigation involving child molestation, Ray Buckley, an employee of Virginia's McMartin's Preschool, was arrested September 7, 1983, by this department. The following procedure is obviously an unpleasant one, but to protect the rights of your children as well as the rights of the accused, this inquiry is necessary for a complete investigation. Records indicate that your child has been, or is currently, a student at the preschool. We are asking for your assistance in this continuing investigation. Please question your child to see if he or she has been a witness to any crime or if he or she has been a victim. Our investigation indicates that possible criminal acts include oral sex, fondling of genitals, buttock or chest area, and sodomy, possibly committed under the pretense of taking the child's temperature. Also, photos may have been taken of children without their clothing. Any information from your child regarding having ever observed Ray Buckley to leave the classroom alone with a child during any nap period, or if they have ever observed Ray Buckley tie up a child, is important. Please complete this enclosed information form and return it to this department in the enclosed envelope, stamped return envelope, as soon as possible. We will contact you if circumstances dictate same. We ask you to please keep this investigation strictly confidential because of the nature of the charges and the highly emotional effect it could have on our community. Please do not discuss this investigation with anyone outside of your immediate family. Do not contact or discuss the investigation with Ray Buckley, the accused family, or employees connected with the McMartin Preschool. Holy guacamole. Right. So, Lauren, I want you to imagine that you're a parent of a child and you get this letter How do you think you're going to question your child? Very panicked. Right? Very, yes. Very panicked. So, um, for those of you who have, this is your first episode, hi, welcome. Um, So, some of my background, I have actually interviewed about 200 kids about child abuse investigations. So, I know how we do it now. We do it better now. 
Um, and actually, this case is largely responsible for the research on how to interview children and kind of how we do it now. I'm not interviewing anymore, but I did for a couple of years. So if you look at this, realistically, parents are going to immediately panic and start crying and interrogating their children. So there's a difference between being like, does the school make you feel uncomfortable? Has anything you don't like happened there? Has it, have you seen any private parts or has anyone touched your private parts, right? Versus like, oh my God, did they touch you? Did they put anything in your butt? Did they take your temperature? Do they do this? Have yeah. you seen them? Has he tied anyone up? Like, realistically, parents are, they love their children. They want to protect them. And they're not going to like calmly question their kids. Right. At the same time, and this is just something with child development, realistically, if you ask your child that and they say like, no, nothing's happened. Right. What are you going to say at that point? Sure. Are you sure? And that question could potentially lead to a lot of kids saying no. Because when parents ask kids, and keep in mind, a lot of these kids are toddlers. These are not like older kids who can tell a whole story. These are young, young kids. Um, A lot of times, um, you know, when parents ask toddlers, are you sure, it's because they've answered the question wrong. It's like, what's one plus one? And they say four, and you might be like, are you sure it's four? And that's how they know. Like, that's kind of just a common language pattern. Um, And I'm not saying it's bad for parents to ask questions about their child's safety. You should, of course, ask. But when you're in a state of panic, that's not the time. Not right to be asking your child these questions and it just getting a letter like this is going to cause hysteria, which is exactly what it did. So families began to come forward and children began to get interviewed. So initially the police were interviewing all of the kids, which is not the best situation. Um, You know, a lot of times police are great at interrogations, maybe not great at talking to toddlers about things that Mm -hmm. happen to them. It depends on the specific officer, of course. So, um, you know, now a lot of police are trained and do a great job. But if you're not trained, you probably shouldn't be the person doing it. And then they went to the Children's Institute and were interviewed by Key McFarlane. So our good friend, Key McFarlane, was using some uh, interesting methods and um, also, it's she's really interesting because she's a she was a social worker. She was unlicensed, yeah. and before going to the institute or the institute, it looks like she had worked basically for DCFS administration doing policy writing, but had was not working directly with children. Okay. Um, so initially, children largely denied abuse, but they disclosed during two-hour interviews. That is so long. Um, Like I said, I've interviewed about 200 kids. I've never done a two-hour interview. That is excessive. Interviews uh, were suggestive and used methods such as dolls and puppets, and rewards were given for correct information. Again, huge red flag there. The only correct information is what the child tells you. You're not looking for specific answers. You're looking for the child to tell you the truth no matter what it is. That's kind of the goal of interviewing. Um, And again, dolls and puppets are largely not used in interviewing anymore. We always have that perception that, like, the police officers with the kid, like, show me on the doll. 
that's not common protocol anymore. Um, I mean, I'm technically trained to use an anatomical dolls. I never have, but I know how to. Um, but even like if you're going to use it, you need to use anatomical dolls or puppets. Um, and you have to test for representational shift which um, is basically to see if the kids are even able to identify that this doll is representing them and what happens to the doll is what happened to them. Mm-hmm. A lot of two-and-a-half-year-olds cannot do that. They're just not developmentally there yet. Mm-hmm. So using dolls would be dicey, right, and using puppets. If you're using, like, an animal puppet, that's not a person. That's not what a kid looks like. Right. It's very hard for a kid to, like, take a puppet of an animal and be like, that is me. That looks like me. What I'm saying happened to that look, like, happened right. to me. Um, the Children's Institute diagnosed 360 children as having been abused at McMartin. Again, that's a bit of a red flag with them diagnosing children as abuse. That's not something that we do. Even in interviewing, people interviewing do not make the determination what happened. You just get the, you're not supposed to be like, based on this, they were definitely abused. You can't say that because like you weren't there. So even now therapists like don't really say for sure that someone is abused. Like we don't make that determination of what happened. Based on all of these things, Ray Buckley, Peggy Buckley, Virginia McMartin, Peggy Ann Buckley, Marianne Jackson, Bet Rader, and Bebet Spittler are indicted on 115 counts of child sexual abuse. So this escalated really, really quickly, mm-hmm. where it started with one parent making one report of abuse at a preschool, a letter sent home, now we have 360 kids and 115 counts of right. abuse. Um, Dr. Astrid Tiger of the Children's Institute International concluded that 80% of the children she examined had been molested. For the most part, this was based not on physical evidence, but on medical histories and her belief that any conclusion should validate the child's history. Um, So I have a problem with that um, because medical conclusions should be based on medical evidence. And of course, your patient's report is Important, but if I say I have a broken arm and you do an x-ray and I don't have a broken arm, you shouldn't be saying medically speaking this person has a broken arm. You say this person has arm pain, this person reports that their arm is broken, but doctors should not be like, did an x-ray and everything's negative, uh, but it's not broken. And yes, I know x-rays are not always 100% accurate. That was just an example. Right. Um, So, and again, even, um, you know, I've looked through medical reports and again, a lot of how things have changed directly changed because of this case. But typically, they will, the most common response is that, like, a typical exam, which does not rule out abuse or evidence that may or may not suggest abuse, it's very rare for a doctor to be able to say 100% this kid was abused based on a medical exam. So now, um,. To give you an idea of how this these interviews actually went, um, we have an actual transcript from one of these interviews. Lauren, would you like to help me I read this? Which one do you want me to be? Would you? Will you be the boy in this scenario? Um, so this boy, I, I will be. Key McFarlane. Okay. Lauren is going to be this boy. And I believe this boy is like six or eight years old. So he's a little bit older. Okay. Okay. Mr. Monkey 
is a little bit chicken, and he can't remember any of the naked games. But we think that you can, because we know a naked games that you were around for, because the other kids told us, and it's called Naked Movie Star. Do you remember that na- game, Mr. Alligator, or is your memory too bad? Um, I don't remember that game. Oh, Mr. Alligator. Um, well, it's, um, a little song that me and a friend heard of. Oh... Well, I heard out loud someone singing Naked Movie Star, Naked Movie Star. You know what, what, Mr. Alligator? That means you're smart, because that's the same song the other kids knew, and that's how we really know that you're smarter than you look. So you better not play dumb, Mr. Alligator. She literally just told the child that was the right answer, so you're not nearly as dumb as you look right now. Okay. Right? All right. Well, I didn't really hear a whole lot. I just heard someone yell it from out in the... uh, Someone yelled it. Maybe, Mr. Alligator. The kid is an alligator puppet, by the way, if you guys didn't pick up on that. You peeked in the window one day and saw them playing it, and maybe you could remember and help us. Well, no. I haven't seen anyone playing Naked Movie Star. I've only heard the song. What good are you? You must be dumb. Well, I don't really um, remember seeing anyone play that because I wasn't there when I when people are playing it. You weren't? You weren't? That's why we're hoping maybe you saw. See, a lot of these puppets weren't there, but they got to see what happened. Well, I saw a lot of fighting. I bet you can help us a lot, though, because, like, Naked Movie Star is a simple game because we know about this game because we just have had 20 kids told us about that game. Just this morning, a little girl came in and played it for us and sang it just like that. Do you think if I asked you a question, you could put your thinking cap on and you might remember Mr. Alligator? Maybe. You could nod your head yes or no. Can you remember who took pictures for the Naked Movie Star game? That would be a great thing to feed into the secret machine, and then it would all be gone, just like all the other kids did. You can just nod, whether you remember it or not, or see how good your memory is. So when she says the secret machine, she's literally referring to the video camera that they're recording this on. So, as a little boy, I'm nodding my puppet's head. (laughs) Thank you. You do? Well, that's remarkable. I wonder if you could hold a pointer in your mouth, and then you wouldn't have to say a word, and boy wouldn't have to say a word, and you could just point. I please pretend camera on adult male nude doll using alligator puppet. Sometimes he did. Can I pat you on the head for that? Look what a big help you can be. You're going to help all these little children because you're so smart. Okay, did they ever pose in funny poses for the camera? Well, it wasn't a real camera. We just played. Mr. Alligator, I'm going going to ask you something here. Now, we already found out from the other kids that it was a real camera, so you don't have to pretend, okay? Is that a deal? Yes, it was a play camera that we played with. Oh, and it went flash. Well, it didn't exactly go flash. It didn't exactly go flash. Went click. Did the little pictures go zip come out of it? I don't remember that. Oh, you don't remember that. Well, you're doing pretty good. Mr. Alligator, I gotta shake your hand. So... I think as an adult, I would have broken down during that. Um, so, like, 
She's literally there with a small child being like, oh, you're not answering this question how I want you to? You're stupid. That's very coercive of an internet interview technique. And, like, that's, you can kind of see why these kids are going to say what she wants them to. Right. And they're not. He was actually really adamant for most of that, that he didn't see it. It was just a song. Pretty impressive, actually. Right? And the naked movie star thing. So a lot of the kids came out later and they said that it was actually like a chant that they would use to make fun of other kids. That all it was was what you see is what you are. You're a naked movie star. Oh. That's it. That was literally the whole thing. Um, Later they kind of said that it was an abuse thing. Um, But yeah, most of the kids were adamant. So that's what they're talking about with Naked Movie Star. And that's why he's like, it was a song that we sing. Like, it's not a naked game. Um, But some of the allegations later that um, kids were being stripped and forced to do somersaults while singing it. While somebody took videos of them doing naked somersaults. Okay. So, I don't know. So we talked earlier about Judy and her allegations getting a little bit interesting. So I'm going to read you some of her allegations here. And keep in mind, she is claiming that her two-and-a-half-year-old son was giving her all of this information. So Billy, I guess his name was Billy. um, Billy describes having communion in a church. A prayer similar in sound to the Lord's Prayer was recited. A goat climbed up higher, 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 then a bad man threw it down the stairs. It woke up later. Ray poked Peggy at the altar. Lots of candles. They were black. Ray picked his right pointer finger. It bled. Ray put it in the goat's anus. Nobody had clothes on under their robes. Billy had a robe on, too. They put a band-aid on his finger. Old Grandma played the piano. Lots of threats were made against Billy and his family. It's unclear whether it was a doll or a real baby, Billy says real baby, but the head was chopped off and the brains were burned. Billy said Peggy killed the baby. Peggy had scissors in the church and she cut Billy's hair. Billy had to drink the baby's blood. Ray wanted Billy spit. He put on the altar. The baby was big like Billy. It screamed. When Billy's bottom was bleeding, Ray put a tampex in his bottom to stop the bleeding, then took it out. The red-circled people in this ad, referring to a newspaper ad for a local health club, are all familiar with Billy. The three women are witches. The man poked them. Peggy, Babs, and Betty dressed up as witches, too. The person who buried Billy is Miss Betty. There were no holes in the coffin. Babs went with him on a train with another girl. When he was hurt by men in suits, Ray waved goodbye. The train moved fast. It had lights. Ray took him back to school. Um, They're saying possibly Big Brother's Peggy gave Billy an enema before he was taken away. Staples were put in Billy's ears, nipples, and tongue. Babs put scissors in his eyes. She hit him a lot. Chopped up animals, said she would come for him in the night and take him away. She pushed his stomach, threw him against a wall. He's afraid of Babs. Something awful would come out the window. Ray made small babies cry. Billy was hurt by a lion. An elephant played with the zoo. Squirt at H2O. The lion didn't move. Billy was on his back. Ray let him pull the lion's tail. The lion roared but didn't move. Betty was there. An old lady took pictures. Okay, that's a lot of allegations. Uh, that's a lot of information for a two-and-a-half-year-old to be able to cohesively uh, give. Again, to any of our listeners who have toddlers, um, some of them can talk a whole lot. Yeah. It's not 
a story, though. It's like a lot of... It doesn't really make sense. No, no. And so it's really interesting, um, especially with some of the details that, again, she's saying she got this all from Billy, that he was saying this, where, like, a two-and-a-half-year-old wouldn't know what a tampon was. Right. Or the brand. So, like, wouldn't be able to say all this. Also... There are, like, other allegations where they flew on a plane and then back during the day. Like, you would know if your preschooler was, like, being flown around. Absolutely. Presumably at daycare, they're there for, like, eight to ten hours while you're at work. Not really enough to wait at the airport and get out and, like, all of these other things. Right. Um, and, again, if your child goes to daycare and then their hair is cut, you're going to notice oh, that. Nice. But also, if he was really thrown against a wall and had staples put in his ears, nipples, and tongues, and scissors put in his eyes, he would have been injured. Definitely no. During that. You'd think you'd know. Um, which leads me to Judy was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. Uh, but right around the time when these allegations came out, she actually ended up hospitalized um, for trying to kill her brother, I think. Oh. Um, and she died of complications of alcohol abuse before the trial even began. So she did not testify, the original person who said this. Um, other allegations from families include the game Naked Movie Star, children being flushed down toilets into underground tunnels, and abused animal sacrifice, human flying, etc. And, you know, you think with this mass hysteria, people are likely to believe that their kids were abused. But with the level of detail, I mean, think about the way she was interviewing. She was saying, well, other kids told us about it. Mm -hmm. So she was feeding information from kid to kid. And that could explain how a lot of this got back to parents. But because of all of these things going on, they were very inclined to believe it. Um, So after all this, an, an additional 93 charges are added. So... By the time the prelim hearing started, the professor, uh, prosecutor, Lyle Rubin, was saying the media that the seven defendants committed 397 sexual crimes, which is more than they were indicted for, and 30 additional individuals associated with the McMartin Preschool were under investigation. Searches of the McMartin Preschool and the homes of defendants failed to produce much incriminating evidence. No nude photographs of children were discovered, um, like, despite... They're saying that photographing was commonplace. There was no evidence found of any of the secret rooms where the sexual abuse was taking place. Um, And in March 1985, the hysteria hit a point that a group of nearly 50 McMartin parents determined to unearth the secret tunnels they believed were there. They began digging at the lot next to the school. So they met up with shovels and started digging. A few days later, the parents were joined in their efforts by an archaeological firm hired by the district attorney's office. No secret rooms were ever discovered. There you go. Um, The preliminary hearing lasted two years. Oh, my God. Uh, Children gave conflicting evidence and stories throughout their testimony. Um... A year into the preliminary hearing, members of the prosecution's own team began to express doubts of the case. One prosecutor was quoted saying, Key McFarland can make a six-month-old child say he was molested. Um, two prosecutors in the case urged dropping all charges against five of the seven defendants and pushing only ahead for Ray and Peggy Buckley. Um, Lyle Rubin argued that all seven deserved prosecution, and they kind of went. They decided to go for it. Um, But after a December 1985 meeting involving over a dozen members of the DA's office, the decision was made to drop charges against all defendants except for Ray and Peggy Buckley. Um, So far at this point, the case had cost 
Los Angeles County, $4 million. Wow. And the trial had not even begun yet. During the trial, or uh, before the trial was scheduled to begin, there was a lot happening. So independent filmmakers made a documentary on the trial that was turned over to the attorney general's office and the defense attorneys, you know, had and copies of the defense attorneys. They taped interviewer of the prosecutor, Glenn Stevens. In the interview, Stevens acknowledges that the children began embellishing and embellishing their stories of sexual abuse and said that as prosecutors, we had no business being in court. He admitted on tape that they withheld potentially, potentially exculpatory information from the defense attorneys, including evidence concerning the mental instability of Judy Johnson, as well as evidence that Johnson's son was unable to identify Ray in a police lineup. So they literally, I mean, Stevens was, you have to share evidence. That's literally the law. So he was breaking the law in this trial by not sharing evidence that he had. Um, The key witness in the trial was Key McFarlane. In her five weeks on the stand, she fought to defend her controversial interview techniques that included naked puppets, anatomically corrected dolls, and telling children what other children had previously reported. Um, Before she finished her testimony, even the judge was expressing concern about her techniques. Outside of the presence of the jury, he declared, in my view, her credibility is becoming more of an issue as she testifies. Uh, defense expert Dr. Michael Maloney, professor of psychiatry at USC, further discredited McFarland's interview techniques. He said they were presenting children with a script that discouraged spontaneous information and instead encouraged the children to supply expected answers to please mother and father and prove themselves good detectives. So on November 2nd, 1989, After nearly 30 months of testimony, the case went to the jury. The jury spent another two and a half months deliberating, and 52 of the 65 charges against the two defendants were dropped during the trial, including all the charges against Peggy Buckley, and the jury returned an acquittal. On the 13 remaining charges against Ray Buckley, they announced they were hopelessly deadlocked. Um... The jury foreperson explained the vote. The interview tapes were too biased, too leading. That's the main crux of it. Another juror told reporters whether I believe he did it and whether it was proven are very different. Um, The judge said, I'm not surprised by the verdicts. I would have not been surprised at any decision the jury made. Child protection groups and parents pressured the prosecutors to retry him on the charges on which... The first jury deadlocked. 500 people, including the McMartin parents, marched through the streets of Manhattan Beach carrying signs such as, We Believe the Children. One McMartin parent called the verdict in the first trial a crime almost equal to the crime that occurred outside of the courtroom. A television poll showed that 87% of respondents thought the Buckleys were guilty. Wow. Um... So the preschool trial was costly in many ways. In monetary terms, it cost taxpayers $15 million. I I believe, yeah, the second trial was also a mistrial. He ended up acquitted on everything. He was not found guilty. Um, But the cost of the trial for the defendants, Ray Buckley was five years in jail before being released on bail. They lost homes, jobs, life savings, and a stigma might never leave. The children, too, were victims. Ray Buckley, in a CBS interview, said... The poor children went through hell, but I am not the cause of the hell, and neither is my mother. The cause of their hell is the adults who took this case and made it what it was. Parents suffered, many felt betrayed. Um, and the community of Manhattan Beach was 
left uneasy and polarized. And so this is so interesting because just like yours, it was mass hysteria that ended up in a trial Mm -hmm. of things happening. But in this, it got so out of hand, starting with people being uneasy about Satanism to thinking one woman saying her child was abused and suddenly it turning into hundreds of children of being ritualistically abused at this daycare. Now, some people believe this still happened. And are adamantly there are websites defending this as the biggest cover-up of all time. But I'm going to read you a quote here from a kid named Kyle who came forward as an adult about why he made it up in a letter to the LA Times entitled, I'm Sorry. I'm trying to just find a quote. So basically he explained some childhood trauma and kind of where he was going that he was looking for validation And he even talks in this letter, I recommend reading it very specifically about how he lied. Um, And when he told his parents that he lied, they didn't believe him. And he came forward after having children of his own. I can't find a good quote right now. But yeah, I mean, he came forward and literally just talked about how he just made it all up because he felt so pressured by Key and they wouldn't let him leave. And he had been there for, I think, 10 hours at the time his interview was going on. That's so, scary for kids. Right? It was just such a huge mess and it did so much damage to the kids. Very sad. It Very is sad. sad. I feel really bad for Ray, too. I know, right? That is rough. But yeah, I mean, that's, that's, um, I think both examples say how much child and this McMartin case like it is pretty clear how that can escalate very quickly Mm -hmm. especially when children are involved I feel like yeah and you know I do as a general rule believe children and I mean I can't say for sure what did or didn't happen I wasn't there right there may be some grain of truth maybe some grain of truth but that's just it escalated so quickly because of how afraid people were right so to wrap this up unless there's anything else nope i'm good why don't we talk about people doing good shit people doing good shit did you prepare people doing good shit today i'm just gonna kind of wing it great me Um, too you first so people doing good shit um i would like to give a shout out to miss haley from or miss kaylee from full spectrum services Mm -hmm. so she brought this space in West Dundee. We actually rent an office from her. Um, Full Spectrum Services helps people with cannabis education and helps people with chronic pain and other um, issues obtain medical marijuana cards and teaches them how to consume responsibly and consciously. Mm-hmm. And she's doing amazing things for the community and I definitely see that. It's cool to be in-house and see what she's doing. Yeah, and to be clear, she's not a dispenser or anything. No. They, they'll sell you. They have some CBD bath bombs and stuff. They've got some cool stuff there, but they're not a dispensary at all. Um, but yeah, they do some cool stuff over there. Yeah, that's been cool seeing how all mm-hmm. that works. Yeah. For you? Um, I know last time we called it like good shit going on in the world. Some good shit. Um, it's not people related, but just shout out to the fact that puppies exist. I mean, shout out to puppies. Puppies, right? Like, there are so many puppies out there, and no matter how bad your day is, dogs are going to tug at the leashes of their owners just to come say hi to you. And that's a nice thought, isn't it? I just want to say hi to you so badly. All the dogs love you. Remember that. I'm sorry for those of you who are not dog people. 
after your cats are excited to see you too, or pigs, or whatever. Whatever. But, but yeah, no, I think this is good. And, you know, if you guys have questions, definitely hit us up on our Facebook, Spooky Psychology St. Charles. Leave yes. us reviews, five stars, hopefully, if you liked it. Um, subscribe. If you have ideas of things you want to hear, definitely let us know. Please let us know. And, yeah, I think that's it. Yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks for getting spooky with us. Thanks. Bye.